Section 92 of China, Japan, and the Islands of the Pacific. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The World's Story, Volume 1, China, Japan, and the Islands of the Pacific. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 92. The Story of Yoshitsune by Ye Theodora Ozaki. In old Japan, more than 700 years ago, a fierce war was raging between the two great clans, the Taira and the Minamoto, also called the Heiki and the Genji. These two famous clans were always contesting together for political power and military supremacy, and the country was torn in two with the many bitter battles that were fought. Indeed, it may be said that the history of Japan for many years was the history of these two mighty martial families, sometimes the Minamoto and sometimes the Taira gaining the victory, or being beaten as the case might be, but their swords knew no rest for a period of many years. At last, a strong and valiant general arose in the house of Minamoto. His name was Yoshitomo. At this time, there were two aspirants for the imperial throne, and civil war was raging in the capital. One imperial candidate was supported by the Taira, the other by the Minamoto. Yoshitomo, though a Minamoto, sided at first with the Taira against the reigning emperor, but when he saw how cruel and relentless their chief Kiyomori was, he turned against him and called all his followers to rally round the Minamoto standard and fight to put down the Taira. But fate was against the gallant and doughty warrior Yoshitomo, and he suffered a crushing defeat at the hands of the Taira. He and his men, while fleeing from the vigilance of their enemies, were overtaken within the city gates and ruthlessly slaughtered by Kiyomori and his soldiers. Yoshitomo left behind him his beautiful young wife, Tokiwa Gozen, and eight children to mourn his untimely death. Five of the elder children were by a first wife. The third of these became Yoritomo, the great first shogun of Japan, while the eighth and youngest child was Ushiwaka, about whom this story is written. Ushiwaka and the hero of Yoshitsune were one and the same person. Ushiwaka, young ox, he was so called because of his wonderful strength, was his name as a boy, and Yoshitsune was the name he took when he became of age. At the time of his father's death, Ushiwaka was a babe in the arms of his mother, Tokiwa Gozen, but his tender age would not have saved his life had he been found by his father's enemies. After the defeat they had inflicted on the rival clan, the Taira were all-powerful for a time. The Minamoto clan were in dire straits, and in danger of being exterminated now, for so fierce was Kiyomori's hatred against his enemies, that when a Minamoto fell into his cruel hands, he immediately put the captive to death. Realizing the great peril of the situation, Tokiwa Gozen, the widow of Yoshitomo, full of fear and anxiety for the safety of her little ones, quietly hid herself in the country, taking with her Ushiwaka and her two other children. So successful was Tokiwa Gozen in concealing her hiding place that though the Taira clan either killed or banished to a faraway island all the elder sons, relations and partisans of the Minamoto chief, they could not discover the whereabouts of the mother and her children, notwithstanding the strict search Kiyomori had made. Determined to have his will, and angry at being thwarted by a woman, Kiyomori at last hit on a plan which he felt sure would not fail to draw the wife of Yoshitomo from her hiding place. He gave orders that Sakiya, the mother of the fair Tokiwa, 
should be seized and brought before him. He told her sternly that if she would reveal her daughter's hiding place, she would be well treated, but if she refused to do as she was told, she would be tortured and put to death. When the old lady declared that she did not know where Tokiwa was, as in truth she did not, Kiyomori thrust her into prison and had her treated cruelly day after day. Now, the reason why Kiyomori was so set on finding Tokiwa and her sons was that while Yoshitomo's heirs lived, he and his family could know no safety, for the strongest moral law in every Japanese heart was the old command, a man may not live under the same heaven with the murderer of his father, and the Japanese warrior wrecked nothing of life or death, of home or love, in obeying this, as he deemed supreme commandment. Women, too, burned with the same zeal in avenging the wrongs of their fathers and husbands. Tokiwa Gozen, though hiding in the country, heard of what had befallen her mother, and great was her sorrow and distress. She sat down on the mats and moaned aloud, It is wrong of me to let my poor innocent mother suffer to save myself and my children. But if I give myself up, Kiyomori will surely take my lord's sons and kill them. What shall I do? Oh, what shall I do? Poor Tokiwa! Her heart was torn between her love for her mother and her love for her children. Her anxiety and distraction were pitiful to see. Finally, she decided that it was impossible for her to remain still and silent under the circumstances. She could not endure the thought that her mother was suffering persecution while she had the power of preventing it. So, holding the infant Ushiwaka in her bosom under her kimono, she took his two elder brothers, one seven and the other five years of age, by the hand and started for the capital. There were no trains in those days, and all traveling by ordinary people had to be done on foot. Daimyos and great and important personages were carried in palanquins, and they only could travel in comfort and in state. Tokiwa could not hope to meet with kindness or hospitality on the way, for she was a Minamoto, and the Taira being all-powerful, it was death to anyone to harbor a Minamoto fugitive. So the obstacles that beset Tokiwa were great, but she was a samurai woman, and she quailed not at her duty, however hard or stern that duty was. The greater the difficulties, the higher her courage rose to meet them. At last she set out on her momentous and celebrated journey. It was winter time, and snow lay on the ground, and the wind blew piercingly cold, and the roads were bad. What Tokiwa, a delicately nurtured woman, suffered from cold and fatigue, from loneliness and fear, from anxiety for her little children, from dread lest she should reach the capital too late to save her old mother, who might die under the cruel treatment to which she was being subjected, or be put to death by Kiyomori in his wrath, or finally, lest she herself should be seized by the Taira and her filial plan be frustrated before she could reach the capital. All this must have been greater than any words can tell. Sometimes poor distressed Tokiwa sat down by the wayside to hush the wailing babe she carried in her bosom, or to rest the two little boys who, tired and faint and famished, clung to her robes, crying for their usual rice. On and on she went, soothing and consoling them as best she could, till at last she reached Kyoto, weary, footsore, and almost heartbroken. But though she was well-nigh overcome with physical exhaustion, yet her purpose never flagged. She went at once to the enemy's camp and asked to be admitted to the presence of General Kiyomori. When she was shown into the dread man's presence, she prostrated herself at his feet and said that she had come to give herself up and to release her mother. I am Tokiwa, the widow of Yoshitomo. I have come with my three children to beseech you to spare my mother's life and to set her free. My poor old mother has done nothing wrong. I am guilty of hiding myself and the little ones. 
yet i pray humbly for your august forgiveness she pleaded in such an agonizing way that kiyomori the taira chieftain was struck with admiration for her filial piety a virtue more highly esteemed than any other in japan he felt sincerely sorry for tokiwa and her woe and her beauty and her tears melted his hard heart and he promised her that if she would become his wife he would spare not only her mother's life but her three children also for the sake of saving her children's lives the sad-hearted woman consented to kiyomori's proposal it must have been terrible to her to wed with her lord's enemy the very man who had caused his death but the thought that by so doing she saved the lives of his sons who would one day surely arise to avenge their father's cruel death must have been her consolation and her recompense for the sacrifice kiyomori showed himself kinder to tokiwa than he had ever shown himself to any one for he allowed her to keep the babe ushiwaka by her side the two elder boys he sent to a temple to be trained as acolytes under the tutelage of priests by placing them out of the world in the seclusion of the priesthood kiyomori felt that he would have little to fear from them when they attained manhood how terribly and bitterly he was mistaken we learn from history for two of yoshitomo's sons banished though they had been for years and years arose like a rushing mighty whirlwind from the obscurity of the monastery to avenge their father and they wiped the taira from off the face of the earth time passed by and when the little babe ushiwaka at last reached the age of seven kiyomori likewise took him from his mother and sent him to the priests the sorrow of tokiwa bereft of the last child of her beloved lord yoshitomo can better be imagined than described but in her golden captivity even kiyomori had not been able to deprive her of one iota of the incomparable power of motherhood that of influencing the life of her child to the end of his days as the little fellow had lain in her arms night and day as she crooned him to sleep and taught him to walk she forever whispered the name of minamoto yoshitomo in his ear at last one day her patience was rewarded and ushiwaka lisped his father's name correctly then tokiwa clasped him proudly to her breast and wept tears of thankfulness and joy and of sorrowing remembrance for she never could even for a day banish yoshitomo from her mind as ushiwaka grew older and could understand better what she said tokiwa would daily whisper remember thy father minamoto yoshitomo grow strong and avenge his death for he died at the hands of the taira and day by day she told him stories of his great and good father of his martial prowess in battle and of his great strength and wonderful wielding of the sword and she bade her little son remember and be like his father and the mother's words and tears sown in the long years of patience and bitter endurance bore fruit beyond all she had ever hoped or dreamed so ushiwaka was taken from his mother at the age of seven and was sent to the tokobo monastery at kuramayama to be trained as a monk even at that early age he showed great intelligence read the sacred books with avidity and surprised the priests by his diligence and quickness of memory he was naturally a very high-spirited youth and could brook no control and hated to yield to others in anything whatsoever as the years passed by and he grew older he came to hear from his teachers and school friends of how his father yoshitomo and his clan the minamoto had been overthrown by the taira and this filled him with such intense sorrow and bitterness that sleeping or waking he could never banish the subject from his mind as he listened daily to these things the words of his mother which she had whispered in his ear as a child now came throbbing back to his mind and he understood their full meaning for the first time 
In the lonely nights he felt again her hot tears falling on his face, and heard her repeat as clearly as a bell in the silence of the darkness, Remember thy father, Minamoto Yoshitomo, avenge his death, for he died at the hands of the Taira. At last one night the lad dreamt that his mother, beautiful and sad as he remembered her in the days of his childhood, came to his bedside and said to him, while the tears streamed down her face, Avenge thy father, Yoshitomo. Unless thou remember my last words, I cannot rest in my grave. I am dying, Ushiwaka, remember. And Ushiwaka awoke as he cried aloud in his agony, I will, honorable mother, I will. From that night his heart burned within him, and the fire and love of clan race stirred his soul. Continual brooding over the wrongs of his clan generated in his heart a fierce desire for revenge, and he finally resolved to abandon the priesthood, become a great general like his father, and punish the Taira. And as his ambition was fired and exalted, and his mind thrilled back to the days when his poor unhappy mother Tokiwa prayed and wept over him, daily whispering in his ear the name of his father, his will grew to purpose strong. Tokiwa had not suffered in vain. From this time on, Ushiwaka bided his time every night till all in the temple were fast asleep. When he heard the priest snoring and knew himself safe from observation, he would steal out from the temple, and making his way down the hillside into the valley, he would draw his wooden sword and practice fencing by himself, and, striking the trees and stones, imagine that they were his Taira foes. As he worked in this way, night after night, he felt his muscles grow strong, and this practice taught him how to wield his sword with skill. One night, as usual, Ushuaka had gone out to the valley, and was diligently brandishing about his wooden sword. His mind fully bent upon his self-taught lesson, he was marching up and down, chanting snatches of war songs and striking the trees and the rocks, when suddenly a great cloud spread over the heavens, the rain fell, the thunder roared, and the lightning flashed, and a great noise went through the valley as if all the trees were being torn up by the roots and their trunks were splitting. While Ushiwaka wondered what this could mean, a great giant over ten feet in height stood before him. He had large, round, glaring eyes that glinted like metal mirrors. His nose was bright red and it must have been about a foot long. His hands were like the claws of a bird, and to each there were only two fingers. The feathers of long wings at each side peeped from under the creature's robes, and he looked like a gigantic goblin. Fearful indeed was this apparition. Murushiwaka was a brave and spirited youth and the son of a soldier, and he was not to be daunted by anything. Without moving a muscle of his face, he gripped his sword more tightly and simply asked, Who are you, Sirrah? The goblin laughed aloud and said, I am the king of the Tengu, the elves of the mountains, and I have made this valley my home for many a long year. Footnote. The Tengu are strange creatures with very long noses. Sometimes they have the head of a hawk and the body of a man. End of footnote. I have admired your perseverance in coming to this place night after night for the purpose of practicing fencing all by yourself, and I have come to meet you with the intention of teaching you all I know of the art of the sword. Ushiwaka was delighted when he heard this, for the Tengu have supernatural powers, and fortunate indeed are those whom they favor. He thanked the giant elf and expressed his readiness to begin at once. He then whirled his sword and began to attack the Tengu, but the elf shifted his position with the quickness of lightning, and, taking from his belt a fan made of seven feathers, parried the showering blows right and left so cleverly that the young knight's interest became thoroughly aroused. Every night he came out for the lesson. He never missed once, summer or winter, 
and in this way he learned all the secrets of the art which the Tengu could teach him. The Tengu was a great master, and Ushiwaka an apt pupil. He became so proficient in fencing that he could overcome ten or twenty small Tengu in the twinkling of an eye, and he acquired extraordinary skill and dexterity in the use of the sword, and the Tengu also imparted to him the wonderful adroitness and agility which made him so famous in afterlife. Now Ushiwaka was about fifteen years old, a comely youth and tall for his age. At this time there lived on Mount Hei, just outside the capital, a wild bonze named Musashi Bo Benkei, who was such a lawless and turbulent fellow that he had become notorious for his deeds of violence. The city rang with the stories of his misdeeds, and so well known had he become that people could not hear his name without fear and trembling. Benkei suddenly made up his mind that it would be good sport to steal a thousand swords from various knights. No sooner did the wild idea enter his head than he began to put it into practice. Every night he sauntered forth to the Gojo Bridge of Kyoto, and when a knight or any man carrying a sword passed by, Benkei would snatch the weapon from his girdle. If the owners yielded up their blades quietly, Benkei allowed them to pass unhurt, but if not, he would strike them dead with a single blow of the huge halberd he carried. So great was Benkei's strength that he always overcame his victim. Resistance was useless and night by night one and sometimes two men met death at his hands on the Gojo Bridge. In this way, Benkei gained such a terrible reputation that everybody far and near feared to meet him, and after dark no one dared to pass near the bridge he was known to haunt. So fearful were the tales told of the dreaded robber of swords. At last this story reached the ears of Ushiwaka, and he said to himself, what an interesting man this must be. If it is true that he is a bonze, he must be a strange one indeed but as he only robs people of their swords he cannot be a common highwayman if i could make such a strong man a retainer of mine he would be of great assistance to me when i punish my enemies the taira clan good tonight i will go to the gojo bridge and try the mettle of this benkei ushiwaka being a youth of great courage had no sooner made up his mind to meet benkei than he proceeded to put his plan into execution he started out that same evening it was a beautiful moonlight night and taking with him his favorite flute, he strolled forth through the streets of the sleeping city till he came to the Gojo Bridge. Then, from the opposite direction, came a tall figure, which appeared to touch the clouds, so gigantic was its stature. The stranger was clad in a suit of coal-black armor, and carried an immense halberd. This must be the sword-robber. He is indeed strong, said Ushiwaka to himself, but he was not in the least daunted, and went on playing his flute quite calmly. Presently the armed giant halted and gazed at Ushiwaka, but evidently thought him a mere youth and decided to let him go unmolested, for he was about to pass him by without lifting a hand. This indifference on the part of Benkei not only disappointed but angered Ushiwaka. Having waited in vain for the stranger to offer violence, our hero approached Benkei and, with the intention of picking a quarrel, suddenly kicked the latter's halberd out of his hand. Benkei, who first thought to spare Ushiwaka on account of his youth, became very angry when he found himself insulted by a lad to whom he had been intentionally kind. In a fury he exclaimed, miserable stripling, and raising his halberd struck sideways at Ushiwaka, thinking to slice him in two at the waist and to see his body fall asunder. But the young knight nimbly avoided the blow which would have killed him, and springing back a few paces he flung his fan at Benkei's head and uttered a loud cry of defiance. Footnote. The fighter's fan was always made of metal and was often used as a weapon. 
End of footnote. The fan struck Benkei on the forehead right between the eyes, making him mad with pain. In a transport of rage, Benkei aimed a fearful blow at Ushiwaka as if he were splitting a log of wood with an axe. This time, Ushiwaka sprang up to the parapet of the bridge, clapped his hands, and laughed in derision, saying, Here I am, don't you see? Here I am. And Benkei was again thwarted thus. Benkei, who had never known his strokes to miss before, had now failed twice in catching this nimble opponent. Frantic with chagrin and baffled rage, he now rushed furiously to the attack, whirling his great halberd round in all directions, till it looked like a water-wheel in motion, striking wildly and blindly at Ushiwaka. But the young knight had been taught tricks innumerable by the giant Tengu of Kuramayama, and he had profited so well by his lessons that the king Tengu had at last said that even he could teach him nothing more, and now, as it may well be imagined, he was too quick for the heavy Benkei. When Benkei struck in front, Ushiwaka was behind, and when Benkei aimed a blow behind, Ushiwaka darted in front. Nimble as a monkey and swift as a swallow, Ushiwaka avoided all the blows aimed at him, and, finding himself outmatched, even the redoubtable Benkei grew tired. Ushiwaka saw that Benkei was played out. He kept up the game a little longer, and then changed his tactics. Seizing his opportunity, he knocked Benkei's halberd out of his hand. When the giant stooped to pick his weapon up, Ushiwaka ran behind him and with a quick movement tripped him up. There lay the big man on all fours, while Ushiwaka nimbly strode across his back and pressing him down asked him how he liked this kind of play. All this time, Benkei had wondered at the courage of the youth in attacking and challenging a man so much larger than himself, but now he was filled with amazement at Ushiwaka's wonderful strength and adroitness. I am indeed astonished at what you have done, said Benkei. Who in the world can you be? I have fought with many men on this bridge, but you are the first of my antagonists who has displayed such strength. Are you a god or a tengu? You certainly cannot be an ordinary human being. Ushiwaka laughed and said, Are you afraid for the first time then? I am, answered Benkei. Will you from henceforth be my retainer? demanded Ushiwaka. I will in very truth be your retainer, but may I know who you are? asked Benkei meekly. Ushiwaka now felt sure that Benkei was in earnest. He therefore allowed him to get up from the ground and then said, I have nothing to hide from you. I am the youngest son of Minamoto Yoshitomo and my name is Ushiwaka. Benkei started with surprise when he heard these words and said, What is this I hear? Are you in truth a son of the Lord Yoshitomo of the Minamoto clan? That is the reason I felt from the first moment of our encounter that your deeds were not those of a common person. No wonder that I thought this. I am only too happy to become the retainer of such a distinguished and spirited young knight. I will follow you as my lord and master from this very moment if you will allow me. I can wish for no greater honor. So there and then, on the Gojo Bridge in the Silver Moonlight, the Bonze Benkei vowed to be the true and faithful vassal of the young knight Ushiwaka, and to serve him loyally till death, and thus was the compact between lord and vassal made. From that time on, Benkei gave up his wild and lawless ways and devoted his life to the service of Ushiwaka, who was highly pleased at having won such a strong liegeman to his side. Although Ushiwaka had now secured Benkei, it was impossible for only two men, however strong, to think of fighting the Taira clan, so they both decided that the cherished plan must wait until the Minamoto were stronger. While thus waiting, they heard a report to the effect that a descendant of Tawara Toda Hidesato named Hidehira was now a famous general in Kaiwai of the Ashu province, and that he was so powerful that no one dared oppose him. 
Hearing this, Ushiwaka thought that it would be a good plan to pay the general a visit, and try to interest him, if possible, in the fortunes of the house of Minamoto. He consulted with Benkei, who encouraged the young knight in his scheme of enlisting the general Hidehira as a partisan, and the two therefore left Kyoto secretly, and journeyed as quickly as possible to Oshu on this errand. On the way there, Ushiwaka and Benkei came to the temple of Atsuda, and as they considered it important that the young knight should look older now, Ushiwaka performed the ceremony of Gembuku at the shrine. This was a rite performed in olden times when youth reached the age of manhood. They then had to shave off the front part of their hair and to change their names as a sign that they had left childhood behind. Ushiwaka now took the name of Yoshitsune. As he was the eighth son, it would have been more correct for him to have assumed the name of Hachiro, but as his uncle Tametomo the archer was named Hachiro, he purposely did not take this name. From this time forth, our hero is known as Yoshitsune, and this name he is glorified forever by his wonderful bravery and many heroic exploits. In Japanese history, he is the knight without fear and without reproach, the darling of the people, to them almost an incarnation of Hashiman, the popular god of war. As for Benkei, never can you find in all history a vassal who was more true or loyal to his master than Benkei. He was Yoshitsune's right hand in everything and his strength and wisdom carried them successfully through many a dire emergency. From Kyoto to Oshu is a long journey of about 300 miles, but at length Yoshitsune, as we must now call him, and Benkei reached their destination and craved the general Hidehira's assistance. They found that Hidehira was a warm adherent of the Minamoto cause, and under the late Lord Yoshitomo he and his family had enjoyed great favor. When the general learned, therefore, that Yoshitsune was the son of the illustrious Minamoto chief, his joy knew no bounds, and he made Yoshitsune and Benkei heartily welcome, and treated them both as guests of honor and importance. Just at this time, Yoshitsune's eldest brother, Yoritomo, who had been banished to an island in Izu, collected a great army and raised his standard against the Taira. When the news about Yoritomo reached Yoshitsune, he rejoiced, for he felt that the hour had at last come when the Minamoto would be revenged on the Taira for all the wrongs they had suffered at the hands of the latter. With the help of Hidehira and the faithful Benkei, he collected a small army of warriors and at once marched over to his brother's camp in Itsu. He sent a messenger ahead to inform Yoritomo that his youngest brother, now named Yoshitsune, was coming to aid him in his fight against the Taira. Yoritomo was exceedingly glad at this unexpected good news, for all that helped to swell his forces now brought nearer the day when he would be able to strike his long-planned blow at the power of the hated Taira. As soon as Yoshitsune reached Izu, Yoritomo arranged for an immediate meeting. Although the two men were brothers, it must be remembered that their father had been killed and the family utterly scattered when they were mere children, Yoshitsune being at that time but an infant in his mother's arms. As this was therefore the first time they had met, Yoritomo knew nothing of his younger brother's character. One of Yoshitsune's elder brothers had come with him, and Yoritomo, being a shrewd general, wished to test them both to see of what metal they were made. He ordered his retainers to bring a brass basin full of boiling water. When it was brought, Yoritomo ordered Noriyori, the elder of the two, to carry it to him first. Now brass, being a good conductor of heat, the basin was very hot, and Noriyori stupidly let it fall. Yoritomo ordered it to be filled again, and bade Yoshitsune bring it to him. Without moving a muscle of his handsome face, Yoshitsune took hold of the almost unbearably hot vessel, and carried it with due ceremony slowly across the room. 
This exhibition of nerve and endurance filled Yoritomo with admiration, and he was favorably struck with Yoshitsune's character. As for Noriyori, who had been unable to hold a hot basin for a few moments, he had no use for him at all except as a common soldier. Yoritomo begged Yoshitsune to become his right-hand man and zealously to espouse his cause. Yoshitsune declared that this had been his lifelong ambition ever since he could remember. As they both were sons of the same father, so was their cause and destiny one. Yoritomo made Yoshitsune a general of part of his army and ordered him in the name of his father Yoshitomo to chastise the Taira. Delighted beyond all words at the wonderfully auspicious turn events were taking, Yoshitsune hastened his preparations for the march. The longed-for hour had come to which, through his whole childhood and youth, he had looked forward, and for which his whole being had thirsted for many years. He could now fulfill the last words of his unhappy mother, and punish the Taira for all the evil they had wrought against the Minamoto, all the wild restlessness of his youth which had driven him forth to wield his wooden sword against rocks in the Kuramayama Valley, and to try his strength against Benkei on the Gojo Bridge, now found vent in action most dear to a born warrior's heart. With several thousands of troops under him, Yoshitsune marched up to Kyoto and waged war against the Taira, and defeated them in a series of brilliant engagements. The stricken Taira multitudes fled before the avenger like autumn leaves before the blast, and Yoshitsune pursued them to the sea. At Dan no Ura, the Taira made a last stand, but all in vain. Their lion leader, Kiyomori, was dead, and there was no great chieftain to rally them in the disordered retreat that now ensued. Yoshitsune came sweeping down upon them, and they and their fleet and their infant emperor likewise, with their women and children, sank beneath the waves. Only a scattered few lived to tell the tale of the terrible destruction that overtook them on the sea. Thus did Yoshitsune become a great warrior and general. Thus did he fulfill the ambitions of his youth and avenge his father Yoshitomo's death. He was without a rival in the whole country for his marvelous bravery and successive victories. He was adored by the people as their most popular hero and darling, and throughout the length and breadth of the land his praise was sung by everyone. End of section 92. This recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Colleen McMahon.